Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupul, and I appreciate you joining me today. Just as a reminder, uh, this podcast is part of the Christian Podcast community, which is a host of over 40 podcasts. So uh, just go to christianpodcastcommunity.org if you're interested in taking a look at some of the other podcasts uh, that uh, I'm a community with. So uh, there's some really good ones out there, and I hope that you'll uh, appreciate them and, and be blessed by them. So today we are going into part two of the kingdom of God. But first, as always, is our law of the day. Now today is a kind of a dual law. It's seen in two places, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And this is the law from Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And then it has a parallel law in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This law seems quite relevant in our day-to-day, because our world cares about justice, or at least it says it does. And sadly, it's using a worldly or man-made definition of justice and typically puts the word social in front of it. So it is social justice that we, as a culture, need need to strive for. But the thing is, is that true justice is defined by God and his word. If you ask, what is justice? What does God want you to do? What does he want society to do? We have to look at look at his word. And true justice does not respect the person as far as what class they're from, or ethnicity, or social status, or whatever the case may be. You know, it's not it's not a coincidence that Lady Justice is depicted as a uh, woman with the scales in one hand, the sword in the other, and she's blindfolded. Because Lady Justice is supposed to be blind. She's not supposed to see the externals. She's supposed to look at justice, the facts, what happened, truth. That's what matters. Now, what's happening today is not much different than in the past. In the ancient world, you know, the wealthy could buy judgments that favored them. They could buy justice. They could get justice to turn in their favor. Um, and that happens today as well with wealthy or influential individuals, uh, they're, you know, the same standards are not applied to them. What happens to uh, a, a poor person or uh, a regular common person might not happen to a rich and famous person who uses their influence to escape uh, the punishment of a particular crime. Now, in the ancient world, uh, there's an example that I think is quite fitting, and that is the example of King Ahab trying to steal Naboth's vineyard. And this story is in 1 Kings 21. I want to read just a portion of it to you. And it starts in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, 
king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money. Or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed the fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise! Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So, it's kind of a long story, but really, really good story. I mean, there's so much injustice here, where you have basically an issue of eminent domain. The king, the king himself, wants the vineyard to become his vegetable garden. Naboth says no because in Israel, per God's law, the inheritance of the fathers is to stay within the family, not to be transferred out of the family. And Naboth is trying to be faithful to what his fathers had passed to him and what he was going to pass to his his children. But Ahab wasn't happy with that. He was all grumpy and sad and depressed because he couldn't get the vineyard. And, And Jezebel basically says, aren't you the king? Don't you have the power? And her plan was simple. Basically accuse him of treason. You know, hey, in in a sense, you can justify it. I mean, Naboth, you know, committed treason. He didn't obey the king. And it's really necessary that the king gets this land. You know, it's, it's it's in the good interest of the people. It's in the interest of government. You know, it's in the interest of the king that this happens. And Naboth, of course, is standing in the way. So she accuses him of treason and gets two witnesses against him, basically essentially bribing uh, two witnesses to, to give false, uh, false uh, testimony, and Naboth is removed. And now they get the land. So you've got a lot of problems here, a lot of injustice. In this case, it's government injustice against the people, not necessarily the rich versus the poor 
but the government versus the people. So at the end of the day, biblical justice looks at the facts of the case and weighs them against God's law. And it's supposed to show no partiality, no favoritism to anyone, regardless of their class or their status, position in the government. And if justice is not done, Scripture is very clear that God will bring judgment, and it won't go very well for those who are under God's judgment. Now, how do we apply this today? Well, it's quite simple. Our justice system is now becoming the opposite of biblical justice. See, now we care about class, ethnicity, and gender identity and things like that. You know, skin color matters. It all this matters. And we're looking at outcomes rather than the processes. So, you know, we, we get upset. Why are so many more black men incarcerated for violent crimes or for drugs than than white men in compared to the percentage of the of the races and they see the disparity of outcome the differences you know in their minds it should be a perfect ratio if the population is 50% white and 20% black then 50% of all murderers in prison should be white and 20% of all murders should be black of course it doesn't really work when it comes to gender because obviously half the population is female but i think over 90 to 95% of violent crimes talking about murder and rape is done by men okay so you know why is there no outcry that there's not enough women represented in prison compared to men well because every group Every society, every culture struggles with their own particular sins and or crimes. And there's other factors as to why, you know, one particular group might be overrepresented or underrepresented in a particular situation. But God doesn't want us to try to manipulate things to get a particular outcome. See, the outcome is in God's hands. He wants us to be faithful to trust in him, and to pursue the proper process, which is where we get the phrase due process, due process of God's law. It's the process that matters, and the outcome is in God's hands. So, you know, if the process is two or three witnesses is what's sufficient to condemn someone for murder, and if someone murders and there's enough witnesses to condemn them, then that person is punished. And it doesn't matter whether they're, most of them are white or black or male or female. Doesn't doesn't matter. Justice doesn't try to manipulate things to get a desired outcome. That's like that's like trying to make the dice roll a certain way. You know, playing with loaded dice, trying to force things to happen. Um, and it's really it's really arrogant to to do that. Basically. If we try to do that as a society, we are usurping God's role. We are trying to become God and say, well, no, we are going to decide the outcome. We are going to make it happen in accordance with what we think things should look like. And God says, that's wicked. That's inappropriate. Now, our justice system also takes responsibility away from individuals. We blame the environment or the system or parents, systemic racism, uh, we blame genetics, saying we were born this way. And we do everything we can to avoid individual responsibility. Now, here's the, here's the important point. 
God does not say that environment and nature and nurture don't matter. Those things do matter. And God is very clear that later generations will feel the effects of the sins of their parents. If I, if I go out and just spend all my money gambling and, and just wasting it all, I will be hurting my children. I will. They, they, won't, they won't have as much when they grow up. Or if we go into debt, or, you know, lose the house because of some really bad decisions, it affects them. But here is the key. At the end of the day, everyone is to be judged by the same standard. And it doesn't really matter about the nurture or the nature. Okay? Like those things, there is a place to deal with those things. But law and justice is blind. At that point, Everyone has to meet a certain bare minimum standard. And to try to alter justice and show favoritism to achieve a desired outcome is to play God and is to replace God's law with man's law. And it goes all the way back to the garden where Adam was told he could be his own God. And instead of obeying God and trusting God with the outcome, we usurp God and try to make the outcome we want. Now, there is a place, like I said, for dealing with past sins and grievances and problems with nurture and nature and the environment. And that healing, that restoration is to be found in in the church and local community and the family. The civil magistrate is supposed to affect due process and focus on that. It's supposed to be impersonal. Okay, The civil government wields the sword. It's very impersonal. It's not intimate. It's not relational. Um, and to give another example, First Kings chapter three is the example of Solomon giving his judgment against the two prostitutes. And if you recall, they both had babies around the same time. One woman in the middle of the night rolls over onto her son and, and smothers him and kills him. And then the next day, she exchanges the babies while the other woman is sleeping. So the other woman, uh, you know, she, her son is basically stolen from her. And she gets the dead son. Now, in the story, Solomon, he doesn't go into, well, which one's more victimized? This one had a, more of a grievance against the other one or whatever the case may be. Like, like he wasn't trying to, to show favoritism in that regard. He probably didn't even know these women. Okay, they're just two prostitutes that come up to him. And he's not even judging them for their prostitution. You know, there's that issue that could be dealt with too. But no, no. And he's not even blaming the system. You know, well, if only they had more money, they could have afforded cribs for their babies and separate houses. And this would not have been an issue if they lived in separate houses and their babies were in cribs and they didn't have, you know, to sleep in the same bed with their babies. And, you know, it's a system that drove them to prostitution. And that's why. No, no. What Solomon does, he says, okay, I don't know which one is the real mother. So, you know what? Take a sword, cut the baby in half and give each mother half of it. And then the mother that basically said, no, 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 give, give her the baby, give her the baby. He was like, that's the mother. The mother cares for her child and would rather lose the child than see it killed. And then the mother that wasn't the mother, she was like, well, as long as she doesn't get the child, that's fine with me. And there is that sinful heart where um, even the mother who lost her baby by rolling onto it, uh, she could not stand the idea of the other mother being happy and having the child. For her, it'd be better that it, that nobody have it uh, than 
then the mother be reunited with her with her child. So Solomon's goal in all of this was to find out who was the mother, the real mother, and to find the truth and then restore the son or the, the child to uh, its mother. So at the end of the day, God determines what factors matter and how to go about pursuing justice. And it's arrogant for us to think that our ways are better than God's ways. And part of God's kingdom is that God rules and we're to follow his laws. And that's what it means, at least in this situation, to, sh- to not show partiality or favoritism in judgment. And sadly, our culture is very quickly deviating from that. Now, this leads me to the main topic of the day, which is part two of God's kingdom. How do we understand God's kingdom? So we already looked at a large number of passages in scripture about what does the kingdom look like? When does it arrive? How does one enter it? What are its traits and characteristics? And when will it be fully uh, inaugurated or ended? And what will happen after that? So now we're taking all that information and let's try to summarize it and bring it all together. So how do we understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as set forth in scripture? First, it's not what the disciples expected it to be. They wanted a military slash political kingdom. In in the Gospels, so many times the disciples are not fully understanding what's happening here. They they are thinking of a kingdom of the world in which there's coercion, force, military strength, swords, and everyone else gets destroyed. Okay? And they want a kingdom of the world that's gained by man's efforts and, and man's strength, where they are the, the cabinet members, you know, secretary of state, war, treasury, all those things. That's what they're hoping for. And we see two passages in scripture that I read last time that showed how, how the scribes and Pharisees had acted violently towards, the, towards God's kingdom. They had tried to enter it by force, which again is man's efforts, man's works of justifying himself and achieving his own righteousness. Another thing we see is that the kingdom, it's both present and future. You know, we see examples of present reality. For instance, the contemporaries of Jesus were experiencing it. He said, you are, the kingdom is is upon you. The kingdom is now. Uh, The kingdom is with you. Uh, Believers are, are described as having already entered it. Um, Blessings are described as both now and future. Those who seek first the kingdom of God will receive, you know, family, friends, property, loved ones, both in this life and in the life to come. Jesus spoke of the kingdom using very near, very immediate language. The kingdom of God is upon you. It's in the midst of you. It's now. Uh, But there's also examples of future fulfillment. A sorting or a purging will take place. The wheat and the tares. Jesus has to conquer his enemies before the end comes. Uh, put everyone under his under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus said to his disciples, he won't drink wine again with them until after the end, after returning. And there is an age to come that's spoken of. There's this age and the age to come that is mentioned several times in the passages. The kingdom of God is described as growing and increasing, starting small, but expanding. Many of the parables that he used use the language of growth and increase in in work. You have the mustard seed planted, small, 
but grows to a huge tree. You have the, the leaven that's put into the loaf and it spreads throughout. You have the stone in the book of Daniel that's not made by human hands and it smashes the kingdoms of the world and grows to a huge mountain that fills the, the whole earth. And the kingdom also develops along with the wicked weeds as, as in the wheat and the tares. The kingdom gradually gains superiority and completeness. There is language of conquest and victory. I think last time I quoted from Revelation, which talks about the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of God. So it's not even just a, a smashing and replacing. There's a sense in which the kingdom of God uh, envelops or overwhelms or, or conquers the kingdom of the world. The kingdom is spiritual. It means it's of the spirit. It involves teaching obedience to God's law and preaching the gospel. The gospel is the word of the kingdom. The kingdom is not about eating and drinking, but joy, peace, and righteousness. These are fruits of the spirit. It's the penitent. It's the humble. It's the forgiving who are citizens of the kingdom. And those who are of the sinful nature of the, of the flesh are denied access to the kingdom. So, what, so these are all the things that we see about the kingdom. So what implications does this have for us as Christians today? Well, it's quite simple. Kingdoms have kings. They have laws. They have land. They have subjects. Jesus is the king and has all the authority in heaven and on earth right now. As he even says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Not will be given to him, has been given to him. The earth belongs to Jesus and is under his authority and rule. The law of God is the law of the land. It's the king's law, the king's command. The king has citizens and the king has enemies. Christians are citizens of the kingdom. They obey the king's laws. The Christians wage spiritual warfare against the king's enemies. We have a duty to conquer the world spiritually in the name of the king. We do this by waging spiritual warfare, not physical war with swords, bows, and arrows, but spiritual war of prayer, fasting, singing, and proclaiming the word of God through scripture. We tear down arguments and take every thought captive, as the Apostle Paul says. We can go, Jesus says, go make disciples because Jesus is Lord, because all authority is in his hands, because he is king, and that this the world is his land. We proclaim the gospel and teach others to obey the king's laws. So where is the kingdom today then? Well, it is where God's people are obeying the king. It's where Christian parents raise their children to live godly lives. And that's where the kingdom is. Where Christian businessmen show good stewardship and obey God's law and how they run their business, the kingdom is there. It's uh, where children submit to their parents in a godly manner. The kingdom is there. Where pastors preach the word faithfully to the congregation. The kingdom is there. Where men repent of their sin and lead godly lives. It is there. Where women repent of their sin and choose to serve God. The kingdom is there. Where government leaders punish evil and promote good laws and God's law. It is there. The kingdom is there. So the kingdom is wherever God is actively reigning and ruling among the people. It's where the king is recognized as king and he's obeyed as king. It's where the people obey the king's law because they love and serve the king. It is everywhere that God's people are, where two or three are gathered. And remember that passage regarding two or three are gathered is in the context of church discipline. 
the enforcement of the king's laws, the king's standard. So the goal for us Christians is for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done. That's why we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We submit to the lordship of Christ in every area of life. We desire others to submit to Christ's lordship in every area of life. We don't use coercion or man-made laws, but we use God's law word. We use the good news of Jesus, and we use God's law. Remember, justification, being declared not guilty, is by God's grace and mercy alone. But sanctification is becoming more like Christ. It's through the work of the Spirit, growing us and causing us to obey God's law and to be conformed to Christ and Christ's image. So, you know, God's law includes the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. The New Testament guides us in understanding and applying God's law. As I said in the last episode about uh, not muzzling an ox, we, we saw how the New Testament takes that law and applies it today, and it would still be applicable in its very context. If you had uh, oxen that you were plowing with or threshing out the grain with and you muzzled them out of greed and stinginess, you would be sinning. You would be breaking God's law. So it still applies. It's just that we need to understand how it applies under the new covenant now that Christ has come. And we should expect that the kingdom is going to grow, but it will be persecuted. As God's kingdom grows, the kingdom of darkness will fight harder and harder to maintain its position. So obedience to Christ will increase along with persecution. But the kingdom doesn't lose. It wins. It's not shrinking, but growing. That's why Jesus said uh, to Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, what's, what's the, what are gates? Defensive structures. The church is on the march. The church is going through Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? The church is making disciples of all nations. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it as the gates of hell are defensive. They're trying to stop the church. The church isn't on the defensive. The church isn't hunkering down behind a wall or under a bunker. No, we are on the offensive. Our job is to go and make disciples of all nations. So Christians must be active, not passive. We're not defensive, but offensive. Every square inch of this entire universe belongs to King Jesus. And so we are to believe that, live it, and proclaim it. And God is the one that brings the growth. God is the one that brings the increase. We can't make the kingdom grow, but we are citizens of the kingdom, and the king has told us what to do and how to live in the Great Commission and in his law. And I want to end this section with a excerpt from a recent book I read. And the book is called The Institutes of Biblical Law by Rusus Rushduni, and written in the 70s, and it's quite a remarkable book. I mean, it's it's long. It's a three-volume set, uh, and each volume is multiple hundreds of pages, so read it at your own risk and t- take it one bite at a time. But there are so many gems of truth uh, in this book that I can't recommend it enough. If you're really interested in understanding, applying, and just looking at the implications of God's law and his kingdom upon the earth. But here is just one section that Rush Juni says here about God's kingdom. Quote, While the biblical kingdom of God is not of 
or derived from this world. It is in this world and over this world. It is therefore a kingdom with very practical concerns. It governs the total life of man, his work, rest, worship, education, sexual and family life, his community, his church, state, and all things else. This kingdom is one whose citizenship is made up of all who are a new creation in Christ, the last Adam. But it is a kingdom whose jurisdiction is total over all heaven and earth. It is a kingdom of grace, because all who exist therein are created and recreated by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it is also a kingdom of law, because it is governed by the word of God, the king. The kingdom of God is a very real kingdom. In the Old Testament, God ruled from the Holy of Holies through judges, kings, and prophets. In the New Testament era and our times, he rules from eternity, but no less powerfully and totally, and his law is still the basis of his government. God has not decided, since Christ's resurrection, that tithing is obsolete, adultery a joke, homosexuality simply a sad affair and a tragedy rather than a sin, theft something no longer requiring restitution, and so on. It is the law, not of the Medes and Persians, which does not pass away nor alter, but the law of God. The purpose of the kingdom of God is to govern every area of life and thought to the glory of God. Man, as God's image bearer, is called upon to recognize the meaning of the image he bears and to develop the implications of God's kingdom and law for the totality of his life and the world. The law of God is thus inseparable from man's calling. So I think that section just summarizes the situation so well. We are God's people. We are citizens of the kingdom. We are to obey the king, and the king has a law. And his law has not been erased or forgotten or ignored or destroyed. It's not choose your own adventure. It's clear. It's in the Old Testament. It's all throughout scripture. We need to read it, apply it, live it, and proclaim it. And so I hope that you found this short little series on God's kingdom to be a blessing to you and hopefully thought-provoking. If you have any questions about this topic or others, please don't hesitate to email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always go to my website, ericloophold.com, and find links to the Governed by God podcast and other episodes there. So again, thank you for joining me today. And until next time, take care and God bless.